Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Roz Deegan is the CEO of OMAS Therapeutics, a company moving drug discovery into high definition. Roz has developed a transatlantic career focused on the commercial and strategic side of the biotech industry, spanning management consulting, business development, finance, and now as a CEO. She talked to us about the importance of sponsors and mentors, the difference between the UK and US, moving from big pharma to startup biotech, and how the pandemic has changed the way OMAS operates. This week, I'm with Roz Deegan of OMAS Therapeutics. Roz, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Um, So Roz, we always start by talking a little bit about the work that you're doing at the moment. Can you tell us a bit more about OMAS, the work that you're doing there, and, and where the company's at at the minute? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Tom, I'm going to simplify this and probably not do it justice. uh, But the way I think about drug discovery conventionally is that it's effectively like the old television that your grandparents used to watch. So you've got a a lot of static uh, and a very fuzzy kind of grainy picture at best. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I think about cell-based assays. And we use native mass spectrometry and other biophysical technologies to effectively convert that to 4K color high definition television. Okay. And the reason I say that is because if you think about cell-based assays, number one is you're only asking one question. So at best, you're going to get a sort of fuzzy picture of exactly what's happening at at a protein level. Hmm. And then you get a lot of noise and static, effectively because there's all sorts of confounding factors to the readout that you're measuring. So there's the, the actual health of the cells can confound the result. The expression of the protein of interest can confound the result. Uh, Your compound can actually interfere with whatever your assay is and give you confounding data. Um, Mm -hmm. And best case, you're only getting an average readout across the different cells. And so, like I say, there's a lot of noise and effectively a fuzzy picture. And when you use mass spectrometry, mass is is a discrete single quantitative measure. And proteins, when they complex, they change mass. When mm. they bind to ligands or compounds, they change mass. And so we can actually record that, and that gives us this high-resolution, high-content picture of both binding and function in a single assay. So the way we think about it is it's drug discovery in high definition. I see. Okay, I like that. That's really good. Um, and it's interesting because you know most biotech companies are started based on a technology, but often it's a it's a drug technology or a compound that they're they're developing or a, a you know a pathway or, or something like that. But this is based on a technology that's improving a technique and applying that to to drug discovery. So wh- where are you focusing? What sorts of things are you applying it to? Yeah, so the the main focus is around membrane proteins. So that's the most challenging type of protein to actually see in in a mass spectrometer. And that's where our founding scientist, Carol Robinson, has really pioneered um, approaches and developed intellectual property to protect a way of actually extracting the membrane proteins and seeing those proteins and how they complex in a mass spectrometer. Mm. Um, We started in GPCR, so G-protein coupled receptors. So effectively, if you think about a GPCR, everything that it does, every function that it takes is effectively a change in mass. So if it binds to one, couples to one G-protein, it's a change in mass. It couples to a different G-protein, that's a different mass change. You can look at agonism, antagonism, partial agonism, um, all in the mass spectrometer. Uh, but now we're also looking at the second largest group of membrane proteins, which is solute carriers. Solute carriers have been very hard to drug using cell-based assays. They're often compensatory mechanisms within the cell, so you can't mm-hmm. get good readouts. Um, often overexpression can cause toxicity of cells. So again, you get that noisy, difficult-to-read answer from a cell-based assay. We think this biophysical approach to solute carriers will give us a, a way in to target that target class. Okay. So that's how we think about it. But we also have said that that's not enough focus for a company that wants to take things to market, which is effectively what we want to do. Right. So we've also um, honed that down into immunology uh, as a broad area of biology that we're going to study. And also genetic diseases outside of immunology, where effectively the genetics simplify both the biology and the clinical path. So mm-hmm. that's our overall strategy. 
Okay, yeah, interesting. And so this um, this this high definition technology, for want of a better description, um, although I think that's a good one, um, it allows you actually to 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 look at novel targets, to look at things that previously have been tough to drug and and things that haven't been accessible before. Yeah, exactly. So good for going after things that are tough to drug. Also just for yeah. getting different information out of, um, you know, you might go after different pharmacogenomic variants of a GPCR um, or a different mutated variants of a GPCR. Um, so there's different ways that you can take the technology, but effectively it, it does give you that step up to drugging uh, membrane proteins. Mm, okay. And your role there is as chief executive? Tell us a bit about that. It's obviously a broad role, but where do you spend most of your time? Where's your focus? What, what do you tend to do on a day-to-day -day basis, Rose? Yeah, so it varies. I mean, I think mm. it is, it's different from any other job I've had because I think in the end, being CEO is, is all about the people that you're with. Mm -hmm. It's about surrounding yourself with great people. And then it's about enabling them to actually do their functions really well. So, so to a degree, you do fill in the gaps. So there may be, you know, in a small company, there may be particular roles. You know, I have a business development background, so I would clearly pick that up myself. Right. Um, you know, the financing aspects, working with uh, the rest of the team, you know, I do a lot of that and stakeholder management. Um, but a lot of what I do is really engaging with my team and making sure that they're fully enabled um, to be the brilliant selves that they are mm -hmm. um so it's i guess building on that business development background that you've had and the, the management consulting background you've had and and then helping everyone else to to realize the things that they're good at right um, exactly exactly yeah. so it was really important to me even taking the job that i had a a really strong um C cso in place so ali right. Desieri comes from heptaris um you know there's a great complementary um fit with the technology coming from a biophysical background um a gpcr membrane protein background and so it was really a, a large part of me taking the role was was seeing that complementarity between my skill set and his skill set mm. um and so as i say you know ali sin giles my management team Stephen, john um what my job is to enable them to do great jobs yeah, excellent. So I want to explore that background that's brought you to today a little bit more. Um, and I guess taking it back to the very beginning, so or not the very beginning, but, but nearer the beginning, um, you started out um, going to Cambridge studying natural sciences. What, what was the sort of origin of doing that? You know, what interested you in a scientific career in the, in the first place? Um, yeah, it's 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 not really a great answer because I I think in many ways I was I was choosing the career that kept most options open. I think okay. I've always been somebody who's a who likes being a generalist, and in in some ways that's why the first role that I've actually felt truly comfortable doing is being CEO of a company because <laughs> I'm allowed to sort of be a generalist in multiple different areas. But when the when they get very technical or very deep, you need a deep um, understanding of an area. I pass it back to the functional specialist, and that's mm -hmm. sort of my my best my best fit. Um, so I took science in many ways because um, it kept all my options open. I could I could still go and be a doctor. I could still go and be a lawyer. I could right. still go and get into business. Um, and if I decided to be a research scientist, I could do that. Um, I think I only really started to enjoy science sort of in of itself, probably um, in, at A levels. I enjoyed biology, but I still at the time was. I was actually thinking I might go and do law at some point. Okay. Um, I went and did work experience at a couple of corporate law firms, and I think that slightly put me off. <laughs> um, and and I was at the same time I was beginning to get more engaged in, in science. In particular, I really like molecular biology, and that was mm. that was um, an area that I got I became very fascinated by. Um, and so over my university years, I was becoming more and more interested in science. Um, but there was very little explanation of sort of the world outside academia. Um, mm. Either I was completely uh, un, um, unequipped to, to go and search out what other roles one could take with a science degree. Um, I don't think, I, or, or there just was no route to even discussing them. All of my friends went into PhDs. Um, it was just an expectation that if you were doing, did well in your degree, that's what you went and did. Um, so that is actually what I went and did. I started a PhD. Um, at Cambridge and it was only then that I, I suddenly sort of looked at myself about six months in and I thought everything that I sort of was good at and liked here um, I'm no longer able to do because what okay. I liked was the breadth of the um, knowledge base I was getting when I was um, doing my 
degree. Um, and I liked much more the sort of exam pressure, think on your feet, um, problem solve than the yeah. sort of methodical use your hands scientific discovery. Um, and, and in, and in a, a, an academic post, you're, you're very focused on a specific thing. So all that yes. breadth that I love um, wasn't really what I should be doing. I was supposed to be honing in, again, this sort of real functional expertise as opposed to generalism. Um, so I, I had a sort of moment where I thought to myself, you know, I could keep doing this for three years, but it's just, I'm not going to be that good at it. And I've come out of being, you know, I'd been very lucky that all the way through my sort of learning academic, academic career to that point, my university, my, my A-levels, my school, um, I'd always been, you know, very good, top of the class. And, and I mm. thought, I'm now doing something where I'm going to be mediocre at best. Um, I need to find something I'm good at again. Right. Um, and so I started looking for things that I felt were a better fit with my skill set, which I really think is this generalism, the ability to sort of synthesize, take on a lot of information and integrate it and, and problem solve. Um, and I love science, the theory of it. So I didn't want to move completely away. I never thought I want to you know, go and do investment banking. I'd given up on <laughs> law at that point. Um, so I needed something that had the ability to be heavily immersed in it, um, but not actually doing the, the practical work myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I went into a sort of consulting, management consulting route, not really knowing that was going to be for me, but it was a way into a sort of different way of leveraging science. Yeah, it makes sense. And how did that go down when you decided to move on from your PhD? <laughs> um, I mean, not that well. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know if it's better now, but I think at the time there was a absolutely kind of like a dark side um sort of your um letting letting the side down co- mm. uh, sense around a number of the people who i was working with in the lab um, i will say that my supervisor was actually very supportive i think he could okay. see that it was just you know that this didn't suit me and he, and he'd always been I, I think very receptive to sort of my needs um and so he he didn't push back at all but there were some colleagues in the lab certainly who sort of looked at me as if I was either slightly crazy or even worse sort of betraying something um, by leaving Um, but at the time I I was you know and I won't I'll be honest I think I was a little bit running toward running away rather than running towards I don't think I really knew what I was um, what I was going to I just knew that it where I was was not suit was not going to suit me yeah um and, and then when I got into consulting, I did really enjoy it. Initially, Adelphi was a marketing consulting. And, and, I, and the thing I really enjoyed when I met, went, went was just the industry. I loved the kind of pharmaceutical industry because mm-hmm. it's, it has that sort of complexity and that breadth um, that I was missing when I was kind of studying my PhD. Not only are you in all areas of science, I've always more um, enjoyed science more when it has a when it's close to the application to sort right, of yeah. biology. So it had that sort of medical um, uh, motivation around actually making people feel better, which was um, it was really interesting to me. And just when I went through those first years of sort of learning how clinical trials work, learning how regulate, you know, regulatory work, it's a really complex industry. And I actually mm. love that. And, and business itself as a sort of concept, again, was, was back into being right in my wheelhouse. You have to synthesize a lot of information, think on your feet, problem solve, um, all of the things that actually made me good at exams in science made me good at being a business science kind of um, interface. Yes. So was it just, I mean, from day one going into that marketing consulting role, which is must be a completely different environment from uh, starting out a PhD in, in academia, it, did it just fit? Did it take a bit of adjusting? How was the transition? Yeah, I mean, it didn't, it fit, it felt much okay. better immediately. Um, I was only at Adelphi for a short period because I actually felt that I, I enjoyed it. I thought I, um, I liked marketing, but I, mm-hmm. I, was, I saw that the industry was much more than just marketing. Um, and so when I moved to KPMG, it was really to get a bigger feel for the industry. So to work across different disciplines within the industry. Yes. Um, uh, and at KPMG, I was able to do that. I did projects in corporate finance around, um, uh, they were, uh, the, Glaxo Welcome at the time was putting together a consortium of pharmaceutical companies to do a SNP map of the human genome. And I think I was the only person uh, in my consulting group who knew what a SNP was because I had just come out of university. <laughs> um, so I was uh, put in a pretty senior role there. Yeah. Um, and actually at that point, um, Ad Rawcliffe was my client, um, who's now CEO of Adaptimmune. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was uh, fairly early in both of our careers. And it was Ad who actually brought me back into GSK 
several years later, after I'd carried on at, G, at KPMG, gone to the US, gone to INSEAD to do my MBA. Um, and when I left uh, INSEAD, uh, ad brought me back into GSK in business development. Yes. So I'm aware that, that at places like KPMG, they do, they do hire a lot of people from academic backgrounds and scientific backgrounds. And I guess what I've heard is that the, the analytical skills that you develop, and as you say, the problem solving skills are something that they, they value quite highly. I'd, but I think, you know, often it's not a career that, that scientists will necessarily be aware that is a path for them. I mean, what, what did you spend your time on when you were there? What was your, what, you've talked about one of the projects you worked on, but how did you apply the, the skills that you developed? Yeah, I mean, I think um, on the SNP consortium in particular, the fact that I understood the science was absolutely critical right. um, because it was a you know a highly technical project, and I think you're dealing with people who live and breathe science. So that is the that is why they hire scientists because it's fundamentally important that you're on the same wavelength as mm-hmm. the individuals that you're dealing with. But actually, what you're doing is really sort of integrating that, trying to simplify that information, trying to put structures in place or frameworks in place or contracts in place to enable things to get done. So you're applying a sort of business business plan perspective to that science. Um, and that was what, that was the kind of new area for me, the piece I was learning um, and the piece that I sort of continued to learn as I went to do my MBA. Um, but I think what consulting really helped me with is just that um, I wasn't, I wasn't an expert in anything. I, you know, I knew some science and I was kind of learning some corporate finance and I was also right. interfacing with other people in, in KPMG who knew more about different things. Um, I also ran some IT projects when I was there. I definitely didn't know IT, but I was bringing yeah. in experts. Um, so you really learn a lot of sort of just general business skills, how to put together a good presentation, how to, you know, facilitate a meeting, um, and all of those skills, I think, sort of gave me a good platform uh, later in my career. Hmm. And I guess along with those skills, there's also must be an element of the confidence that you can move between different areas that you aren't necessarily an expert in and apply the things that you know to them. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, you know, and, it, and it suited me because it, it was a very generalist role. But I, but I, I think I, I knew fairly early on, and this is one of the challenges of being consultants, and I, I know a lot of people who've sort of gone through career paths fairly similar to mine, it's, it, it's not defined. And so you really, it's quite a scary sort of career path in many ways, because at, at several points you'll be thinking, you know, how on earth do I get out of this onto something else? You know, I've kind of got what I wanted out of this. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be a career consultant, but I haven't really been trained to be anything else and so how do I take those skill set and convince somebody else um, that I can apply them in a different different way and certainly my career I've had to I've had to do that quite often is demonstrate that to people that the job that I'm applying for is is usually completely different from the one I've just done (laughs) Um, and I've somehow got to persuade somebody that I'm the right person to do it Um, and so I think that in careers like mine that sponsorship and that um, the people in your career um, are so fundamental. Because when I think about mm-hmm. those transitions I've made, they've almost always happened because I've had somebody who's sponsored me and had faith in me um, and known that I can turn my skill set onto that very different thing. Whereas I think if I'd been going cold to interviews um, and saying, hey, you know, I used to be a management consultant, but I'm sure I can kind of come and run your, um, you know, your collaborations and put deals right. together, they'd have said, well, you know, no. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> so when you talk about sponsors, you mean in, in the in the organization or the division or the department that you were going to? Correct. So that's, yeah. I mean, the two biggest are Admiral Cliff, as I said, um, yeah. who brought me into GSK in business development after I'd um, been at KPMG because he'd seen me on this co- um, this uh, SNP consortium project several years earlier. Um, and then Maxine Gowan, who I actually met at GSK, she left to, f- to form Trevina. And although at GSK, I was a business development professional at the time, um, at Trevina, she actually recruited me head of, to be head of finance and operations. Okay. Which even she knew was a kind of a bit of a stretch um, because I really didn't have finance. I had an MBA. I'd done a bit of budgeting in, in um, GSK, but I certainly wasn't a purebred finance person. Yeah. Um, but actually, I used to laugh. I mean, how hard can finance be when you're a loss-making buyer? 
deck. You know, you, know, you don't have the P. You don't have the P of the P and L. You only have to worry True. about the L. Um, you know, and 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 that's one of the things I also you know learn in biotech is you know you're often doing things that are outside your comfort zone. I actually quite enjoy that. Mm-hmm. I, some people hate it. I quite like it. Um, I had financial consultants for that first year who did know what they were doing. Um, but finance is also one of those things that's just pretty cyclical. And so once I'd kind of gone through a year of running an audit and right. putting together forecasts and running payroll and setting up all of your systems, um, then I actually was able to effectively move on from my financial consultants and run finance myself. Mm. It's only when we were um, preparing to list on, on NASDAQ that I'm sort of knocking on Max's door saying, you know, remember right. I'm not a finance person. <laughs> IP time. Yes. Yeah. There's a bit of extra complexity there. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting point. I think um, I get asked quite a lot um, by people who are thinking about making these career transitions. You know, how do I go and do something that I haven't done before? And and it can be really challenging. But this is this is where I guess your network has really come into play and the external relationships that you've had and, and that kind of thing have really really helped you make those transitions as well i think it, yeah i really think it's the it's the only way in some ways because mm. even when i'm hiring people i know that myself i'm probably not going to hire somebody um who looks a completely different fit from the role i'm i'm doing unless somebody i know says look so and so they're really really good you should yeah. take a risk on them, them and then chance. you and then you you know you believe that person um so references are your most important asset is the people yeah. you've worked with yeah, absolutely. And so going back to, the, I guess, the transition out of KPMG, you mentioned you went and did your MBA. Um, I'm assuming to sort of show some sort of certification or some, some um, confirmation of the skills that you've developed um, and, and to add, add to those. And then you went into GSK in what looks like a really interesting project and a really interesting um, part of the business. Yeah, so I went into, it was called deal structuring, but it was effectively early stage business development. So the way GSK was structured at the time is sort of pre-clinical proof of concept deals were ran out of that group. Um, And I think in business development, I always see as as the best area of pharmaceuticals for generalists to operate because effectively each deal is a sort of your general manager to a degree of your collaboration. So you have Mm -hmm. to worry a little bit about the research aspects of that. There's clearly a scientific plan that goes alongside it. There's a finance um, that goes alongside it. There's accounting and tax that you have to worry about. Um, And then there's often a commercial element to it. If you're, if you're working on a, you know, a co-commercialization or a co-development. So you, so you do have to have that, that breadth and that ability to think uh, across all those different disciplines. So for people who are generalists, I think the business development is the sort of one function that can sort of play to that. Mm. Um, and, and that's, I think, why it, it, it often attracts people like me. Um, but even there, I'd say that business development on its own wasn't in the end enough for me in my career. So you'll see in the roles that I took um, after the GSK experience, and even within GSK, they often had a business development piece to them. Um, but they were 50% business development and 50% other things because I was still, right. you know, again, I didn't, never liked being a functional kind of specialist. I always wanted to have my finger in other pies. Yes, makes sense. And I, I noticed you got involved in the center of excellence that they were building there for, for external drug discovery. So I guess that, that then brings you back into that sort of core biotech type work. Yeah, yeah that was my first real exposure to biotech um, in a big way because we were not only doing deals um, in the seed but we were also uh, managing them ourselves so it was a small mm-hmm. group with, across kind of different functional disciplines that actually ran a virtual portfolio and so that was one of those kind of classic roles that I've gravitated towards which was 50% business development that I got involved in doing deals restructuring deals yeah. and about 50% was just helping to run that group so strategic planning for the seed budgeting for the seed um, even putting together you know separate websites for the seed and it was mm-hmm. also the first time I directly um, worked in in Maxine Gowan's uh, line um, and then she, as I said she left to to join to be founding CEO of Trevina and I um, you know, stuck up my hand and followed her. Yeah. And, and that was, that must have been an interesting transition because you've been working with biotechs, but you've been sat in GSK, obviously huge yeah. global organization. Prior to that, uh, INSEAD and Cambridge and KPMG and, and these, these huge, you know, institutions, organizations, whichever you want to call them. And then you've gone and been one of the really early 
members of a, a brand new startup biotech company. How, talk, talk me through that transition. That must have been really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in the US, it was, it's one, it's one of those differences I sort of see US, UK in that right. I think in the US, biotech is so sort of established that that whole kind of, you're crazy, why are you moving from, you know, GSK, <laughs> this big branded company yeah. where you're actually doing really well right now um, to go and sort of to this company that doesn't even really have a, you know, an office, mm-hmm. um, uh, let alone a team or any programs. Um, and, and because I remember talking to people back in the UK, you know, my family, for example, who did all think I was, uh, you know, slightly <laughs> crazy. Um, whereas I think my support base in the US, it, it's, a, it's a society that, that does really encourage entrepreneurism. So, so nobody suggested that was the wrong thing to do. Everybody would right. have, everyone sort of suggested it would have been crazy for me not to. Um, so okay. that helped. So there was definitely yeah. a sense of, um, of this being just, you know, the obvious thing to do in mm-hmm. a strange way, um, in, in my peer group, uh, in the U S. Um, and I think for me, it was a no brainer as well. I mean, I, I, I was interested in biotech. I, I, the role seemed like it was going to give me more of a play into this general generalism. Um, I was struggling slightly in GSK to sort of not be functionally, um, pigeonholed into a right. sort of purist business development role. Yeah. Um, I knew and really liked working for max. We had very strong investors. We had a platform. Um, it was broad. Um, it was local. I didn't have to move house. Um, so, so it, it seemed to me that I would have been crazy not to take that job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember actually when I resigned at GSK, because um, at the time, Ad Rawcliffe had gone, even though I hadn't worked for him directly, he'd gone back to being, I think, head of the group I was in. So, so I ha- actually had to resign to Ad. So I'm resigning to one of my mentors to go and work with another. Right. Um, <laughs> and I remember him saying, like, he kind of laughed and he said, said to me something like, is there anything you could do, like, we could do to make you stay? And I sort of said, you know, really, please don't. Um, because I <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I, I don't even want this to be a decision about anything other than this is this is the right thing for me right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And then that looks like the, the time at Trevina looks like a really really fascinating journey. And you've mentioned that you took it sort of all the way through to IPO. Um, and uh, you know, that, I, don't, I don't know how much your role must have changed within that. Must have been quite a lot, but also just the company and the environment and the the, the culture yeah. that you found yourself in. Yeah, it did. It was it was interesting because, um, as, as I say, I think I've, I've always had a slightly short shelf life in in a sort of single function. You know, I, I enjoyed doing something for about two years. It's functional. I'm in my high learning kind of curve. And then I sort of want to stretch a bit, just at the point right. probably when I'm most useful because I'm you know, <laughs> most qualified in it, unfortunately, for yeah. people who employ me. But uh, um, but anyway, in, so so in other kind of positions, I'd, I'd, I'd moved around quite a bit, even within companies. So I was at GSK for, two, for six years, but I'd moved roles three times. So it was sort of two years, two mm-hmm. years, two years. Um, whereas in Trevina, I didn't really move role at all over the seven-year period, but that was because the company around me changed. And so I my know. role every year was completely different, even though I was still head of sort of you know business and operations or finance and operations. Um, every year, that was a completely different job. Um, you know, when you're working with a sort of eight-person company to a thirty-person company to a public company, so mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, putting in place a different financings um, uh, and and preclinical to clinical. Uh, it was really just a very very. It was a great experience for me because I saw that journey. Um, with people I really enjoyed working with, um, and uh, yeah, very much enjoyed it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds sounds very interesting. Um, and then you took on a slightly different challenge in, um, I guess, I imagine leading the market entry of a, a UK biotech company into into the US. Yeah. So again, that was, um, you know, the role attracted me partly again, that, that people connectivity. So Kevin Lee, who's CEO of, of bicycle, I'd actually worked, um, with at GSK just before yeah. I'd moved to Trevina. So, um, so I had that sort of, uh, again, I think that he, he knew me, I knew him. Uh, so he was able to sort of extrapolate my 
um, capabilities to, to something which was a bit different um, in terms of putting in place the, the US subsidiary for bicycle. Um, but from my perspective, it was one of those BD plus roles. So it was about, mm. you know, 50% BD. I was CBO of the overall kind of bicycle organization. Um, but also I was putting in place the operations for the US subsidiary and president of the US subsidiary. So there was a yeah. significant kind of company build element to it. Um, so that's what attracted me to it. And at the time at Trevina, um, my role had started to functionally specialize because, as I said, at the point of IPO, right. I, I knew I didn't want to be CFO of the company. So we brought yeah, in yeah, CFO. Yeah. We're now 50 people. We brought in a head of HR, which had been under me. And so I'd more and more kind of pigeonhole myself into more of a purist business development role, even in that even in that biotech environment. Um, so it was time for me to, to kind of broaden out my, my uh, role again. Uh, and that was the transition to bicycle. Yeah. And I suppose the, the traditional, the traditional advice you get as a, as a leader in a company and things like that is often that you try and make yourself redundant, right? So you try and develop a team, whether that's building right. a team or training people that can take over bits of your job. I guess eventually it gets to the point where you actually are just sitting there with not as many interesting things to do. Right. <laughs> and, no. Exactly. Challenge, right? Exactly. And I think, um, and that's part of the maturity, I think, of going through your career is realizing mm. that um, fit is such an important aspect of success. Um, and I remember actually having a conversation with Max really in the early days of Trevina, where she was sort of talking about, um, you know, careers and development. She, and she said to me something like, uh, you know, at some point, you know, Trevina may not be the right place. You know, I was kind of horrified because I was emotionally attached to the company at the time. And it was about five years before it actually wasn't the right place. And she was saying, you know, at some point it won't be the right place for me because we'll, you know, things change as, as things go on. So you should be, you know, we should have a conversation as a manager and an employee about what's right for you. And at the mm. time that it's right for you to go somewhere else, I'll support that. And and it's sort of being, learning to, to see that as a supportive conversation. And that, yeah. that's about career development and not about sort of, I've got to succeed in every kind of place I am um, is actually kind of part of career maturity I think and at the time I do remember feeling sort of slightly horrified about the idea that I would be a fit um, at Trevina some point in the future um, but, but, but in the end I was you know I was ready for it and I understood it and, and yeah. that's something that um, I think is important for people to kind of get comfortable with in their careers. Yes, certainly. And you obviously had an exciting opportunity to go on to, um, which, you know, is always, it always helps make that transition. And if you know the CEO, there's that level of comfort there and things like that. But having been with the company from the start, was it, was it a straightforward decision about your career or was it a difficult one? Or how, how was that? The move from Trevena to Bicycle. It was definitely yeah. difficult emotionally because the company was still doing well at the point I left. And, right, and right, I'd right. been with the team seven years and I, I was very emotionally kind of attached to the programs. Yeah. Um, but actually, I, I ended up, but, but the role had become not the right role for me because as I said, it had become a very kind of purist BD role. Um, and, the, and so my interest, even though there were lots of exciting things going on in the company I wasn't really that close to them um, because you know I, I, it wasn't it, it wasn't the role that I, I had at that time. Um, mm -hmm. But I actually didn't move straight to bicycle. Um, okay. I always talked about the fact that I wanted to take some time off to go uh, traveling. So I actually took yeah. a year out after Trevina. Okay. Um, and so that was a uh, so it was a so it was a difficult transition emotionally because I was leaving that, but uh, but it was a very exciting transition for me because I was uh, <laughs> transitioning in, into effectively um, a year off, um, and it, and it was also the objective at that point was to have a bit of a kind of assessment. You know, I'd been on the career track um, for a while, and I wanted to sort of make sure I I wanted to you know continue this did i want to get into something more the charitable sector i'd always sort of thought about that bill and melinda gates foundation mm -hmm. um and, and i'd been toying with sort of thinking about maybe moving my career in that direction so i wanted to have some time when i left Ravina to actually sort of be more deliberate about what i did next yeah um, but sense. in the end over the course of that year I, I i decided that actually what i wanted to do was sort of more of the same <laughs> Yeah. Why, why, why was that? What was it that brought you back to biotech going through that thought process? Um, I think I talked to a lot of people in the nonprofit sector and I still think the nonprofit sector is um, an interesting place to go, but I think it's quite challenging. It's, it's quite um, bureaucratic. Right. Um, and I'd had this really 
you know, good ride at, at Trevina. I'd enjoyed it very much. And there was a little bit of, um, I feel it less actually with OMAS, maybe it's because I'm going in as a CEO, but when you've been, you know, seven years and you sort of started with that eight person, no, no programs, and you've got to um, clinical proof of concept, it's quite hard emotionally to actually say, right, I'm going to go right back to the beginning <laughs> again, seven years ago um, yeah. and start again. And so I think I needed that timeout to realize that actually that journey had been the journey in of itself had been the value, not necessarily the destination. So actually I was excited to go and do it again somewhere else. Yeah. yeah makes sense. And I guess, you know, building that organization, getting that momentum going, um, starting a business and growing a business, it does, does take quite a lot of energy. So having that year yeah, out. Yeah. Having a bit of help. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. To kind of re-engage me. Whereas mm. a bicycle, I think I was in, I was there for a shorter period of time. Um, but to a degree, it was sort of the same experience um, condensed. But I think because I knew I, I'd, I'd done it, I'd been there once before and I'd right. seen it happen. I, I was ready for it and I was happy for it to be a shorter period. Because when I came in, we, you know, there was a lot of possibility to do deals. Um, we did three deals over the course of three years. Um, I built the US subsidiary up to 20 people, um, you know, helped that we started, started the IPO process. Um, and it was really a good transition point. I think I was, I was really thinking personally that I wanted to go and step up to be a CEO at that point. Yeah. I, I knew I'd done 10 years of, of sort of senior management positions in biotech um but also i could see that what um bicycle leader at that point was a, was not necessarily a general kind of manager but more of a um you know a straight bd person um mm. so 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 again it was sort of an accelerated version of trevino that I, yeah. I almost did myself out of that job uh, quicker uh, but i think i saw but i think i saw um I, I i sort of was mature enough at that stage in my career to really plan that and and manage it yes. uh, whereas trevino i think it sort of happened i was i was still kind of emotionally sort of sad about it um whereas at bicycle i was it, i was you know always happy to and, and kevin knew from the from the start we had conversations about the fact that i wanted to go and be a ceo and he mm-hmm. himself sort of um you know put that out there after three years that so that was probably a good time for me to go and actually right okay that yeah, that's good. That's good that you had that support to do that as well. Um, so there was the opportunity to go and take that next step. Um, and what attracted, you know, what brought you to OMAS? What brought you back to the UK with that? What was the, what was that transition like? Yeah, so I was looking for something. So at Bicycle, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was that I'd spent a reasonable amount of time in, in the UK, mm. um, sort of one week every six weeks. And I still, you know, my family was still over here, apart from my husband, um, who clearly traveled with me, but his mm-hmm. his parents were over here, my mom, uh, you know, brother. So it was nice to to not have to use all your vacation time to kind of right. go and visit family because you could, you know, add on weekends every time you came back for work. And it just, yeah. it was a much better life um, balance for me. So I knew I wanted something that gave me a reason to spend time in Europe, um, particularly as CEO where you get even kind of less time to relax. Um, so originally I, I really liked Boston and I was very happy there and I was, and I did interview for a number of CEO roles there, but it was difficult to actually find roles that had a reason to, to spend time in Europe. Mm. Um, I was thinking originally that I'd stay in Boston and maybe take something like a bicycle. Um, but I got introduced to the OMAS opportunity and, and the more I spoke just in Kona, Ali and Carol, uh, Ali the CSO, Carol the founder. Um, it just had a really nice fit with uh, my prior experiences. So the yeah. membrane protein GPCR angle plays back into Trevina. Um, the stage is is really the stage I wanted. I wanted to go in early because I think yeah. it's more it more you have more control over your destiny, making those kind of big decisions about what you work on. Um, and and even though it was only in the UK right now, the aspiration is that at some point we would have presence in the US. So um, okay. in the end, I decided that I'd come back to the UK. Uh, with the plan being to kind of have a foot in both camps in the future. Yes. Sometimes these things come together, don't they? <laughs> yeah. And uh, line up. Yeah. Um, and so having come back uh, to the UK, and, and I know you've been in post for, for about a year or so now, um, obviously you spent a lot of time in, in the Boston biotech scene, which is incredibly hot and very competitive and there's loads going on and lots of money kicking around and lots of great science. Um, and uh, you're now in the UK um seen as well and, and i think you know there's there's some interesting stuff happening here but what what's your view on the the differences i guess and where the uk's at compared to the us and the, the dynamics between the two i suppose yeah i mean i think um 
at OMAS, I do feel that I'm in a bit of a bubble and, and I, and I knew that kind of coming across, it was one of the reasons that I was willing to, to ship, you know, my whole life back to the UK for that <laughs> one company. Um, in that I think, you know, with Syncona and RSI's backing and ambition and capital to support that ambition, we can behave and look and feel very like a Boston biotech. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I haven't really, so I don't really feel it on a day-to-day basis that it's that sure. different, but I think that, um, that the number of companies that look and feel like OMAS in terms of their ambition and their capital in the UK is quite, is probably you could name on kind of two hands. Right. Um, it, I mean, it's not, it's just not a lot of companies at our stage that, that have that privileged kind of position. Um, so I think the challenge is that actually building something and, and, um, and, making a, a drug discovery company work does require that i think and so if you're mm. you're in a very limited funding cycle sort of always worrying about where the next check's coming from yeah. tightening your you know not doing the right experiments because you're saving cash the whole time then i think it can be very difficult um, and i think a lot of companies sort of end up sort of stuck in that cycle where they haven't quite got enough to to really drive things forward um but that you know but they're still sort of ticking along but yeah they're, they're, they're the, the the reins are too tight um and therefore they can't really build long term big value um and so i think you know that's so the so the individual companies within the uk i think are very strong i think the science base is very strong mm-hmm. um but it misses out on that kind of critical mass element um so it's harder to harder to sort of find people who have a rich experience base because even though they may be very high quality people um if they'd been in the u.s for the last 10 years they'd probably have done you know two ipos and uh you know an nda filing and a and a and a um move three programs into the clinic um just by being there almost Mm -hmm. um it's in the uk it's just difficult to find that people who however highly qualified they are and how good they are um they just won't have had that kind of amount of experience um so that's that's that can be more challenging and this this may be a difficult question to answer but do you think do you think that comes from the appetite of the investors do you think that comes from the the companies not thinking big enough is it a combination of the two or i guess they're interrelated but um i think unfortunately it's sort of um until you get to critical mass they all sort of feed on each other and so right. you know there's so is there enough capital in the uk to so fund all of the high quality science that there is in the uk probably not because i do think there is really high quality science mm. but but one of the reasons that there isn't enough capital is because there aren't enough people who the investors can kind of get confident in that can right. deliver that capital and build value with it. Um, but the reason there aren't enough people is because there's not yeah. enough capital for them to have got the experience to have become the quality, you know, the, the experienced leaders that we need in order to take the next generation of companies forward. So I think mm-hmm. it, it will, um, it will continue to build hopefully, um, slowly. I think, you know, pulling people like me back from the US is, is a good yeah. strategy. Um, uh, and, um, and I think, you know, it, 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 it's one of those things that gains momentum. So at some point, hopefully we'll kind of tip the balance yeah. um, and maybe see a more kind of faster growth pattern than at the moment where I think it's more sort of linear. But I think at some point, hopefully we'll tip over where there's sort of enough individuals around who and enough investors around that they can pair up to actually kind of increase that critical mass and then it will take off in a bigger way. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've, I've noticed the last year or so there's there's been bigger raises coming through in the uk and they're not quite at that us level yet but they're getting into the sort of later tens of millions now. yeah and, and, I, and I think that I, i'm not a huge fan of sort of like the 100 million series a because yeah. i think it's it can be quite challenging to sort of grow a company that fast and maintain capital efficiency and mm-hmm. then actually build a valuation that can continue to support that going forward so um you know, I think that there, there is a balance um, between sort of right-sizing um, financing, but, but yes. giving companies enough to actually put the capabilities in place to attract the right people um, to be able to build value. Makes sense. Um, so taking it back to careers, we've obviously talked a little bit about a lot of the transitions in your career, and, and we've talked a bit about the importance of the network and, and building relationships and things like that. Um, what else would you say uh, and there may be a few but what else would you say are kind of the key lessons that you've taken from your career so far or the the advice that you would pass on to people perhaps who are starting out on this journey yeah i think the thing that i um 
the two things I learned later in my career that I wish I'd sort of implemented earlier. So one is the power of the network. I think I was using it on an individual basis with these sort of sponsors, but I think in some ways um, early on, I, I think I equated networking to sort of skiving. And I think it can be perceived that way by people. It yeah. can be kind of like, oh, you, you were off having lunch with so-and-so. I mean, you know, nice, nice if you, you can get that job. Um, but in Boston, it really is, it's a way of life. It, it, mm -hmm. And the amount of kind of collaboration and the bars and the sort of recruitment that happens over coffee, the, um, you know, learning about finding different people, finding different expertise, finding different collaborators, you know, learning about who you want on your board or who you don't want on your board. It all happens in the coffee shops around Kendall. Um, and it's incredibly powerful. And so that was a real learning for me in Boston is just mm. the, the more people you can meet and share experiences with, um, the better. And it, and it just, I think it builds you as an individual, particularly as you get more senior and the sort of number of peers you have is sort of fewer finding those peers in the environment is more and more important. You know, I set right. up a, a small kind of CEO, um, dinner group when I first moved back to the UK okay. um, to achieve that purpose to sort of have, you know, set up my own peer group so that I've got people I can reach out to in other organizations. Um, so that I didn't, I feel I didn't really capitalize on until I went to Boston. Mm. Um, so relatively late in my career. Um, and then the second thing I wish I'd learned earlier is, um, is the importance of practice. And it sounds okay. a bit trite to say that, but um, I think early on in my career, I was, I was, I was lucky in that I've always, you know, like I say, been able to think quite well on my feet. And, and so in some ways I was able to be successful by winging it. But again, as you get more and more advanced in your career, then I think the, the standards get higher. And even mm -hmm. if you might be sort of a very strong person when you're winging it, um, you, you're going to start to look less good against people who've actually practiced. Um, yeah. And I remember dis distinctly at one point, um, again, my, uh, my old boss, Maxine Gowan, who, she, you know, she used to do all these investor pitches and I used to just think she was good at it. Um, and I remember once I was sitting next to her and I suddenly kind of glanced across at the um, pitch deck that she had in front of her and she had like practically the entire talk basically <laughs> written out in pencil on the, on the notes page. Uh -huh. And I, and I remember being sort of slightly astounded by it that she'd actually sort of scripted the entire talk for herself. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a real eye opener to me that if you want to actually look really good at something, practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Don't just wing it. No, it's a really good point. And I suppose as you progress in your career and you're dealing with higher level people as well, right. their, their radar for winging it and their radar for someone who's not quite prepared gets more right. sensitive as well. Right, and you'll just do a better job. And yeah. so it takes time though, because you kind of have to, it's bad enough sort of thinking, oh, I've got a board meeting or I've got an investor pitch without mm -hmm. having to sort of set aside now the day before to sort of, you know, go through your presentation. But actually you get it back in spades because because you actually, you know, deliver your messaging well and, and you'll get whatever you're looking for out of what the important meeting by having really thought about how you're going to just structure structure it in advance. Makes sense. So you, you gotta put in the reps to um, to build that strength. And then going back to the networking piece, because I think that that's really interesting because it comes up all the time in these conversations. And I think it's it's one of the really um, probably most common things we come back to uh, in these conversations is the importance of not just the people around you where you work, but the people that you build connections with and being proactive with that. And I think it, it seems to be something that people do learn through their careers as they progress. Was that something that came naturally to you? Did you have to work at that? Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't have to work at it in Boston because it was so much part of life. Right. But I think I would have had to be more deliberate about it if I don't wanted to implement it earlier in my career, either in the UK or even in Philadelphia when I was um, initially in. Um, I used to go to the occasional networking events mm -hmm. in Philly. Um, but in Boston, you know, I, I, I really felt like I probably did two or three sort of one-on-one -on -one meetings a week um, with no fixed agenda and usually one evening event a week, yeah. with, you know, and so, but, it, but it, there it just really did feel part of my job. So I didn't really think about whether it was hard or easy. It was just expected. And, uh, and then you start yeah. to, and, and, and it's one of the things that you get back a lot from because you start to meet people and you build relationships. And then actually when you go to that party that you're sort of 50, 50 about going to, because you don't know anyone, you've got to go in there. Um, then you actually start enjoying those parties because the yeah. moment you walk in the door, you see 10 people that you know. And so then right, you right, actually right. kind of like uh, actually go and catch 
catch up with them and uh, and have a real relationship with them. So um, I think it gets um, it gets easier if you invest in it. Yeah, and to your to your other point, the more you practice it, the easier it gets, I guess. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So as we record this, we're we're coming into June uh, nearly, um, and hopefully coming to the end of a very turbulent period. Um, yeah. What's next for OMAS? What's the plan going forward? Where, where are you guys heading? Yeah, so uh, so we raised uh, money at the beginning of this year, so we expanded mm-hmm. our Series A. Um, so it's really focused on delivery at this point. So we have uh, three programs that we've selected. Um, we're looking to select another target this year um, and moving those forward with uh, the most advanced, um, getting to um, kind of entry to preclinical development uh, just before we need to raise our next uh, uh, funding round. Yes. Um, so, so it's it's focused on delivery. Uh, you know, clearly the, the current operations have have been challenging, but um, the team has stepped up unbelievably. And so, mm. you know, I think timelines have taken a hit, but but probably less than one would anticipate. One one would have anticipated going in. Yeah, that's good to hear. So now full steam ahead for the rest of the yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've, we've kind of worked out a system that I think can get us, um, you know, up to, you know, pretty close to the, the amount of kind of experimental output that we had previously. Okay. Uh, I mean, we, we are having to be a bit more efficient about, um, you know, how we prioritize. Um, people are clearly you know, allocating their time differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a shift system in the lab, but people are using weekends. They're using longer days to, to accommodate their experiments. And then um, you know, so there's a lot more flexibility and, and a lot more dependence on individual decision-making. Um, but as I said, people have, have really stepped up and, and demonstrated yes. that actually they, in some ways, they enjoy working that way. And so my job is to try and work out how to incorporate some of the things that, that have been beneficial to the company um, during the during the restricted period um, and carry those forward to continue to make OMAS successful. Yeah, no, and it, it was one of the things I was going to ask you about as you were talking about that, actually. Is, so you think there's things that have come out of this need for increased flexibility that, that have been popular or helpful that, that you'll be looking at implementing going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely um, there's always been a perception that sort of we all need to kind of be visible in order to be working. But I, right. but I do think that that's a tired perception. And if you employ the right people, then that, that's not true. And I think this has really shown how untrue that, that is. Yeah. Um, and although I'm, I think there are certain meetings, we have two sites. Um, and I think when you're doing a project team meeting where you've got more people at one site and a couple of people at another site, um, if you run that as a Zoom meeting, it's actually quite unbalanced because a lot of side conversations happen at the bigger site and there may be some mm-hmm. technical challenges with the other site hearing everything and they can feel like a sort of um you know a second player in that conversation it can be quite right. challenging but when you're all e- an equally sized square on a screen um then everybody has equal kind of ability to contribute and we've actually worked out how to get the technology to to work very well so project team meetings are actually much better um, okay. done over zoom with everybody uh, remote than they are with you know 10 people in one room and three people in another mm-hmm. um and so that's one thing that i you know, whereas I think a one-on-one conversation is better done in person. You know, I'd yeah. rather have my one-on-ones with uh, with my management team in person. Um, so, I, so I definitely think there will be more flexibility when we um, in the, in whatever we go back to, um, mm-hmm. and also more more time for people to to work at home. Both the the non-lab base clearly who can do all of their work at home, yeah. um, but also the lab based people. I think have really find it um, beneficial to be able to structure their days to do data analysis to, at home, to read papers at home, mm-hmm. um, to actually. Actually, uh, sort of have that flexibility as well. So, so although you know, there's always this worry. I think that in a, in an organisation where part of your team has to be present to get their job done, that therefore everybody sort of has to be present. Right. Um, but I think what I need to find a way of moving towards is, is having flexibility for both sides. Um, yes. So maybe moving to sort of core days rather than core hours, so that there's okay, yeah. days that everybody's in, everybody's present. You get your kind of one-on-ones done, and then there's other days where people are, you know, it's completely flexible whether you're in or not, and, and try and run project team meetings maybe on those days, so that yes. they are a, they are everybody a square in the on the screen <laughs> there we go so there's there's the silver lining hopefully <laughs> um well we wish you the best of luck with it Roz. thank you very much for your time today um thank you great and uh great to speak with you thanks for having me tom i've enjoyed it thanks for joining us on careers in discovery and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and r d do take a look at our sponsors singular talent 
and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.